Hey folks, this is Dev. Uh, before we get into this episode, I wanted to warn you that the audio is a little bit rough, particularly on my end. Huge apologies for that. I know it's a rough start to a new podcast. I didn't want to re-record it because some of the conversation that Hugh and I have in this episode I feel is really good and, and worth keeping. Please try and stick with it. I promise you you'll love the episode if you do. Good morning, people of the internet. You're listening to Debbie Radio 79.5 FM, a podcast where we discuss the movie Gross Point Blank, one minute at a time. I'm Dev. And I'm Hugh. And on today's show, we're going to be looking at the very first minute of the film, starting with the logo for the production company and ending with the credits for the actors. All right, should we dive into this? Let's go for it. All right. I, I think we've got to take it from the top, right? We've got to take it from the top. So, well, what is the very first thing we see on screen? It is the logo of now defunct shingle Hollywood Pictures. And what does that mean, folks? That means that you're looking at a film that's very hard to find these days. <laughs> on, if you want a good quality disc of it, you're talking to fans of Gross Point Blank, which means you're talking to fans of 90s films, which means you're talking to fans of physical media. And... We miss it when there's not a nice, good, solid edition of something. Yeah, you can buy a Blu-ray. Yeah, you can stream it. But Hollywood Pictures, subdivision of Disney, created to do more movies uh, of more adult nature, having had some success with Touchstone. And there's a number of their films that you will know now if you buy it on disc. It'll be under the Touchstone uh, regime, such as uh, Michael Bay's The Rock, um, they started out with uh, things like Arachnophobia from Amber Entertainment and uh, had a number of flops before they really hit their stride. Um, that said, Gross Point Blank is one of those films that if you mention it, it's like it's still the old school fandom and nerdery, right? You mention that and someone goes, oh my God, I like that film. And you know the kind of person you're talking to. Whereas, yeah. you know, there's other and, films that these guys did that are nothing like that, right? Like, nobody remembers Medicine Man. I saw it in the cinema. <laughs> it was Sean Connery. Nobody remembers that film because it's frankly not very good. <laughs> and, and honestly, like, it it was quite a prolific studio. It had yeah. a lot of films come out. And mm. for, for me, someone of my age, they mm. may not all be favorites. They may not be ones that I remember with particular fondness. But mm. I do remember a huge number of these that, yeah. you know, were, even if they weren't necessarily great overall, had mm. some element to them that was uh, particularly memorable. Sometimes for all the wrong reasons. I'm looking at yeah. Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes just for some really interesting ideas, right? Like Dead Presidents is still like an great incredible... Movie but flawed film in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. But the, the, the many of the flaws are corrected by the director's cut, which is missing in action unless you have the laser disc. <laughs> ah, I didn't For even example. know that was one. I'm going to have to try yeah. and find that. Yeah, it's one of those things that people talk about. This is why now that Criterion have done their beautiful 4K remaster of the Hughes Brothers' first film, um, and its name escapes me very suddenly, but it should be obvious to everyone who's listening if you know who the Hughes brothers are. <laughs> and but we're all hoping, fingers crossed, that somehow somebody finds the licensing for Dead Presidents and, and gets it through. But my assumption is anything that has ever been on this list is owned by Disney now, um, because that's who set up the shingle. So like, but there's some real club. There's there's modern classics in the sense of Joy Luck Club, Tombstone, 
you know, the rock itself quiz show, which got Oscar nominated if memory serves. Don't remember if it got one. Um, you know, Crimson Tide, Dangerous Minds, you know, these 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 films still hold their pattern. Oliver Stone's Nixon, you know. Um so yeah, there's a lot of stuff there that I think people would, would, would hold very kind of kindly to looking back on rather than a lot of the trashier stuff that I quite like, <laughs> like Deep Rising, which I love. Um, but yeah, so so that's the first thing you see on, on screen. And this is the kind of podcast you're listening to, folks. We're going to talk about film nerdery in depth because we just talked about the opening logo. <laughs> For how long there, Dev? <laughs> we're, we're, yeah, we're getting up there. We're not, we're not doing too badly, honestly. I... Um... I know that a lot of the minute-by-minute podcasts that I'm a huge fan of uh, struggle with opening credits and and with the closing credits. And honestly, I think for us and for our interest areas, and I think in all honesty for you in particular, this is possibly going to provide some of the richest material because you have (laughs) such deep knowledge of so many of the people involved so many of the companies involved because you have a whole wealth of background in cinematography and filmmaking. I um, mean, yeah, for the people who obviously welcome listeners and, you know, who are you, who are you listening to here? Well, you know, in my case, uh, while I am currently a secondary school teacher, I have been, I did uh, 10 years plus in DVD and film uh, working for a number of different independent companies, including working in, uh, Western releases of Japanese anime, which is where Dev and I met, and then um, working on uh, uh, horror f- uh, genre film from Asia and Europe, um, and more, eventually finished my my career up as a head of marketing for the now late, very recently defunct uh, network DVD in the UK, which handles ITV's back catalogue. That's America. That's one of the three big TV channels here. Um, uh, before going to work for uh, a, a startup magazine that failed on cult television. So I was the editor and writer for that. So my background is very much in this field, but it's also, yes, I was an obsessive movie nerd. So, you know, uh, for, for me, it was, you know, I, I always say, I always explain it like this, right? So if you're a sport, if sports fans talk about stats, they talk about um, people, they talk about, you know, moments, they talk about, when this happened, where and why, and what were the circumstances under which these players achieved what they achieved. And that's what I do with film. That's what I've always done with film and TV, right? And music, for that matter. It's like with music, I love a band, but I'll look at the producer and go, okay, uh, that guy is interesting. So, oh, look, he produced these other guys. Let me go listen to them. Um, and, And that's how I approach cultural artifacts, media, all that stuff is, you know, you find more of what you might like if you start looking at the people who are behind what you like. I think that's something that people tend to overlook a lot, including myself, honestly, you know, okay. uh, it's easily done with the, the lead actors or, um, you know, the, the, the cast of a movie, maybe mm-hmm. with some of the really most prominent of directors. Mm-hmm. But honestly, I think you, People don't actually go in and look at script writers very often. Aaron mm-hmm. Sorkin may be a, a notable exception there. Um, mm-hmm. People don't look at production companies and, and the types of film that production companies mm-hmm. tend to favor. Um, mm-hmm. And and we were kind of talking about, you know, 
Hollywood Pictures here, having some hits, some misses, but a lot of influential movies for for that time. You know, mm-hmm. there are Touchstone Pictures is another one that has a very very similar uh, kind of scope. Both being subsidiaries yep. of Disney, um, yep. both kind of targeting movies that they wanted to make but weren't going to work well under the Disney brand, uh, which I think is less of a concern these days, given how much Disney has expanded. But at the time was was very front of mind, I think, for most of the Disney execs. Uh, yeah. Disney needed to retain that family friendliness, and I... you can't do that with this kind of movie. I do wonder, looking at how many of the, the films on that shingle were became like either cable hits or VHS hits, I do wonder how much at the time people were saying, oh, you know, yeah, this is not this is only going to do so-so in cinemas, but we'll make it back on VHS. Because one of the things that modern film fans often, younger film fans often seem to forget in their own sports like passion to follow box office is that i mean i you know you and i met nearly 20 years ago and i was in dvd then and even then we were already starting to not worry about like box office was not relevant right um theatrical was marketing for the dvd like as long as i was in the business that was a given that was that was not you know, like, no, very few people were going to argue with you on that, you know? At least at the indie level. Blockbuster may be different. But I know from people who are still in the business today, they get very frustrated when people when you see headlines like, oh, film so-and-so was released for one week and made, you know, 20 bucks. And it's like, yeah, nobody in the business thinks it was going to do better than that. That wasn't the point. Literally not the point. You do it so that you get... At least here in England, for example, if you had a theatrical release, it meant that the major newspapers had to review you in that week's releases. So you suddenly multiply your marketing, boom, straight away, just through the. So, so your your theatrical is effectively a cost against getting loads and loads of reviews in mainstream press. Yeah, I do worry, wonder a little bit because I. My day job now is is in advertising, and I've mm. I've watched how reluctant and how slow that transition to digital advertising has been in the industry. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that was actually a huge hurdle for mm-hmm. the industry, even at this time. Right, we're talking ninety seven mm-hmm. for gross point yep. blank. Um, mm-hmm. I think that is the point where we start to hit that normalization of VHS, which is mm-hmm. 20 mm-hmm. years after the technology came about, right? And mm-hmm. it wasn't super yeah, quickly adopted. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, VHS yeah, no, is, fair. yeah, 77, but it... Oh, it, yeah, good, yeah, true. So, so, yeah. so it, it takes a while for that to be readily available in homes, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. even then, I think there's a lot of comfort and security in relying on that theatrical distribution model that is closer to a hundred years old at the point this film comes out than Mm -hmm. a technology that still seems relatively infant but Mm -hmm. you're right like it it, it, this is the point where it's changing right this is the point where you know a company like uh, hollywood pictures can pump out Mm. you know a dozen movies a year or Mm. half a dozen at least 
and be confident on getting returns knowing that mm -hmm. they're hitting a decent spectrum of the demographic and mm -hmm. people even if they aren't going to buy it outright aren't even going to necessarily see it in the cinema are mm -hmm. going to maybe rent it once or possibly two three times from blockbuster or or wherever yeah. it is they're getting it and, from. and 97 is also <clears throat> you know at this point you've also been getting movies via pay-per-view like hbo for quite some time and right. so there's also that as well as a, as a revenue stream i mean pay-per-view has again it's one of the things film fans don't always talk about is the degree to which a, a, a you know particularly for indie companies a deal with a pay-per-view company can often pay for the licensing of a film like when i was at, at network we would buy foreign films and yeah foreign to the uk obviously you know uh, my, my boss at the time who passed away uh, uh, very recently, actually, in the last year. Um, he had a thing for Latin American and Hispanic language films. And we would always end up with these films from various festivals around the world that were not going to do huge. They were only going to do, I don't know, you know, we'd be lucky to sell a thousand copies on DVD. We're looking at hundreds. But the money was made back by selling it to somebody like Sky Arts. So UK satellite channel, you know, selling its channel for after that. And like that, those deals alone would put you, put you in profit, you know? And the other thing people never talked about for years, which again is like a crucial part of these films of making money is hotels, uh, cruises, airlines. The deals for those, no joke, the deals for those can often you know, put you straight over into the black very easily just because of the amount of places that will be showing it. Yeah. You know, so... If, if you can strike the deal. And, and I think absolutely. That, that can the be a key. challenge. Yeah. Well, looking at the product from, from, from Hollywood pictures, there's definitely some I can imagine. I mean, I, I flew a bit back then. I don't remember seeing many of these. These are not the titles you would see on an airline back then. But I'm just saying that, you know, there's there's certain comedies there they did that I think would end up... I don't see Gross Point Blank because they were still... Airlines were still very anti-violence back then, you know. Uh, and the BBFC over here was still scissoring <laughs> Michael Bay films and whatnot. But, yeah. you know, um, yeah, I think I think Gross Point Blank would have been... I mean, I don't know. How did you... Okay, so two things, right? How did I've said my background, your background, this. You now work in advertising. Right. I do. Yeah. So uh, Hugh and I met almost 20 years ago now uh, when I was working for him at uh, ADV Films. <laughs> you came up uh, to me at a film festival. I and did. And yourself and said, and said, do you have in, any jobs? And I said, no. And you said, well, do you have any interns? And I said, <laughs> I said, we, gonna, we haven't started a program up. And you were like, well, you know, as soon as it happens, <laughs> yeah. hit me up. And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> uh yeah that that's pretty much it i i was in engineering at the time and didn't want to be there and mm. um made got got that opportunity which opened my eyes to marketing and advertising yeah. and that kind of navigated the course of my career um i i have always half wanted to go hardcore into the movie side of things okay and and i've always bulked at it because i have a strong suspicion that if i went too far down that rabbit hole i'd stop yeah. enjoying it and i think it's it's something where it could really kill 
the magic for me if I if it became the job. Okay. Uh, and and I think that's that's kind of where I always ended up. I I love it. I love watching movies. I love dissecting movies to an extent that drives most people I know nuts. <laughs> Um, and I think you can relate to that one. Uh, <laughs> but I, I kind of want to leave it as like a semi-educated amateur. Like mm-hmm. I, I've I have never visited the website TV Tropes because oh. I know I know that if I start going down that and reading into that, it's it's going to just frustrate me too much. I'm going to be focused too many too much on the identification of those tropes at the expense of the the core enjoyment. Okay. Um, that's interesting because, A, you have said to me before that you thought I was burning out on things in exactly that manner. Uh-huh. The person who was our boss at the time at ADV Films UK also said to me that she was worried that if I ever went to Japan, it would I would lose my interest in animation and manga and therefore you know, in in a weird way, it was actually kind of useful for her not to have me go there, right? <laughs> you know, because I can, remained a passionate fan about it all. Because once she got me to America, it actually completely did do that to me. It upset my notion of what I was getting out of American-made films and what I thought they were about in some ways. And it really did kind of prejudice me against them in a really strong way. Um, in terms of personal enjoyment of them, and it, and and so that's kind of it does happen. You you you. you, you I mean, somebody asked Guillermo del Toro a while back in a press junket for a film he produced, not directed, and and they said, oh, you know, what do you, what kind of horror films do you like at the moment? And he was like, you know, the problem is I'm not enjoying many at the moment because you know I I don't want, I don't need I know I I've been behind the curtain. I know how the sausage is made, and I think that's a perfectly fair statement. There is a point where you get to that level and you either you get either you come out the other side with a greater appreciation of how hard it is to make a film and therefore the enjoyment you can have from it or you lose interest and i think you're very sensible to avoid the theory and the study of it once you go down that rabbit hole I mean, there's a lot of fan culture out there that is very much, to, you know, people pronouncing in great depth with very little actual knowledge, but the little knowledge they have is enough, <laughs> they think, to pronounce in a grand manner. And I don't think that that is, you know, I'm not saying that you have to be a chef to criticize the food, but I think you're a more interesting critic if you know how the sausage is made. Yeah, I can see that. Um, and and I think for me, if I'd been in more of a community mm-hmm. of people with my with my mindset of, of really enjoying films, I mm. think it as a group adventure, it could have been exciting and fun. And I, I kind of, going to a completely different movie, I kind of feel like, that was a big part of Edgar Wright, Simon Pegg, Nick Frost's mm-hmm. journey, mm-hmm. right? Was, mm-hmm. I mean, they were further down the path before they met, but they, that group discovery was mm. exciting and, and you, you lean on each other and you reinforce that way. And I don't think I ever had that and I don't think I had the stamina to get through that barrier on my own. 
Interesting. Because you went to a university with some very interesting cinema links, and if memory serves, a reasonably active cinema sub. So, and yet I never about... joined it. I know this is what I was about to ask you. Yeah. So yeah, and and uh, presumably at school you didn't have a lot of friends who were also into it to the same degree. No, definitely not. Actually, you see, that was where I got lucky. You know, eighties being the eighties, it was I got lucky by walking into a comic shop and. And also, I had enough friends at schools who dug a lot of this stuff, to be fair. But once I walked into the comic shop and met all these people who were as head over heels as I was, you know, and you just drink coffee in, from the cafe around the corner and stand there yakking for hours about things, you know, you, you, that's, yeah, some of us got lucky like that. I think, I think that's, you can see why people today love it when they go to their first convention or they go to their first society meeting and meet like minded people. But also, gatekeepers and trolls can be very off-putting and they do exist and you know and as i said they can be very dangerous with very little knowledge um i think people should yeah i want people to just enjoy things because they enjoy them but i love i personally love enjoying things because i understand how things get put together um and sometimes that increases the enjoyment you know i like a lot of movies i know you think are bad movies and other people think are bad movies um <laughs> but i like them because a i get a kick out of them watching them and b yeah just in terms of emotional response but i then i enjoy how they are put together mm. um because yeah. i know what it takes and so i can look at a low budget film and go the ambition here is to do this have the, how far have they succeeded yeah, my enjoyment is often related directly to the degree to which they do or don't succeed up there at what they're intending to do so we also have on on this opening minute uh george armitage's credit as director for the film um i think you're more familiar with his body of work as a whole than i am do you want to speak a little bit to kind of what he's what he's done what he's famous for and and where this fits in okay so Armitage came to a lot of us kind of 80s nerds uh, in terms of uh, our recognition of him as a director. Uh, it was quite late in the day, to be honest. Um, he was he directed a film which has just been reissued here in the UK, actually, uh, called Miami Blues. Now, that was in 1990. It had a young Alec Baldwin in it. It was based on a fairly well-known crime novel, um and it sort of captured the particular flavor of that novelist's work and its setting tonally it was unusual it was it's basically tarantino before tarantino right and armistice did that but what's interesting is that was his first movie in 11 years like he 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 started out in the 70s um and and funnily enough the one that um i have actually seen that is is, is the um black uh, sort of semi black exploitationer um hitman he aims to please uh <laughs> which has got bernie casey and pam Greer. <laughs> oh classic okay yeah oh, right? right you know right. He, he he starts out in that area and then sort of you know find some somewhere along the line he just kind of develops this style I mean, he did, a, he did a TV movie in 79, uh, very little direction afterwards, although, you know, he's a producer and a writer on a number of other things along the way. And then um, Miami Blues comes along and just kind of blows up. People 
because Fred Ward's in it, and Fred Ward plays the the cop character who's the lead in the in the books, and it does a really great job of being the grizzled old cop. And um, Baldwin is the the the, the young lawbreaker who nicks his badge, and so the cop goes after him. You can see how this turns into fun stuff, but it's yeah. got a very irreverent tone to it. It's uh, it isn't a, like Gross Point, it, you know, it prefigures Gross Point Blank in that sense. Um, you know, it's not afraid to be violent when it needs to be, gritty when it needs to be. Um, and I think it's, and, and it's also interesting that while it wasn't particularly well received, um, the next time he directs after Gross Point Blank, so Gross Point Blank is seven years later after Mammy Please, right? The next time he directs after that is The Big Bounce in 2004, which is an Elmore Leonard adaptation. And in theory, that should have been like, a perfect marriage of of talent, but it wasn't, which is you know is widely regarded as a bit of a, a as, as added to the pile of failed Elmore Leonard films, which is kind of a shame because I think it's got some good things going for it. But yeah, I mean he he was nominated for a Primetime Emmy at one point, and uh, he in 2015 he in Germany at the Oldenburg Film Festival he was given an award for the retrospect of his career. So the guy and he's got standing. I mean you know he's. he's People know who, if you're, he's one of those names that when you're a film buff, you probably know who he is. But if you're not a film buff, you probably only know Gross Point Blank and maybe Miami Blues, you know? Yeah. But he's got talent. He's a talented guy. I think he, he, he produces crisp, you know, lean films that are, like, he hasn't a lot, he's, he's never gone down that road of excess. Like, these guys who came up in the 80s directing movies are like, throw some more money at it, you know? <laughs> make it bigger and this is you know he, he he's you know he still makes things like it's the 70s they're lean they're mean they're they're practical they're on the location they get it done you know there's no kind of mucking around it's 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 it, yeah yeah i mean I just it i mean these aren't movies that are going to push the definition of special effects right no precisely um, which yeah. is probably why he did so few films you know Absolutely, because I think at the time he's coming in, especially you know this the nineties period, mm. that's that's not what uh, the producers are, are really wanting, right? They're they're wanting mm-hmm. the big blockbusters. The summer blockbuster is here, and they want to mm. have that. Um, mm. They don't want to be making a big screen movie with a TV show budget. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it's, I'm glad he's still around, you know, and getting awards. I'm glad he's still kind of, you know, I'm glad we're seeing, I, 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 he's just one of those guys I wish made more films. Like, you know, for, we're looking at Gross Point Blank. Don't you wish there were more films like Gross Point Blank? (laughs) I I absolutely do. I absolutely do for, for so many reasons, which is why, you know, I, I've coerced you into doing this podcast because... (laughs) You know, this is straight up my favorite movie of all time, right? Ever okay. since I discovered the movies by minute format, yeah, this is the film that I wanted to do. I, you know, I I love listening to all of the others. A lot of my childhood favorites, right? You know, The okay. Goonies or Princess Bride, or of course Star Wars Minute who kicked this all off. But right. the one that I felt like I would be comfortable trying to talk about for fifteen thirty minutes mm-hmm. for every minute of the movie. Mm-hmm. was without doubt gross point blank it has mm-hmm. um such good pacing it has some great some really fantastic action sequences mm-hmm. and it has what i have come to learn is not in fact just a really really 
uh, fast-paced script, but the lack of a script in in some areas, right? Like George Armitage is allowing the cast to ad lib to a degree that really brings out their characters so much more than I think the script would have. Um, But also the script makes no apologies for the audience, right? The script is not babysitting people through the, the, the stages of the movie that in a, in a manner that we've come to expect. And I find frustratingly patronizing Um, you know there are references that I mean we'll see in like the first five or ten minutes of the movie uh, Mm. allusions to things that don't get explained until you know two-thirds of the way through the movie in a completely unrelated scene Um, that kind of lack of exposition just doesn't happen in movies anymore and okay. didn't even happen all that often in my experience in movies of this time, and especially not right. movies that were this engaging. Right. Um, you know, you, they tend to become the more intellectual, thinky movies. And this, you know, really isn't that. It doesn't want to be that. It's just a fun movie. But you watch it over and over again, and you see all of those threads where everything is playing in from a previous comment or a previous uh, dialogue between the characters, mm-hmm. which has kept me engaged through watching this film so many times. I'm, I'm, I am fascinated at the idea that this is your favorite movie of all time, right? Like you've explained why, and I get it completely. But when I think about all the films over the years, you and I've discussed and those films you've given me jip for. (laughs) 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 I kind of, yeah, I kind of, I, I find it interesting that, this is now that you know, knowing that this is your favorite film, it's like this is the yardstick. It's like, well, no wonder you don't think I should be holding in high regard some of these films, other films, because yeah, Gross Point Blank is a perfect storm, it is an absolute gem, and it is that gem because of all the various things that make up film production, including, as you said, allowing ad libs, going off script, you know, going with the flow, the, the creative talent of being there on the day about shooting the scene and going, what if we try this? And knowing how to integrate that into the finished product. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's yeah. what we're going to be talking about for all the future podcasts. <laughs> it is indeed. We're going to have a few guests along the way to help us out. So you won't just be listening to us go super esoteric into film law. But uh, <laughs> no, yeah. someone else can do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So that was minute one of the Gross Point Blank podcast, Debbie Radio 79.5 FM, featuring your hosts, co-writers and co-producers, Dev Soligar and Hugh David. You can find us all and your favorite podcast players, as well as where else, Dev, can they find us? Uh, You can also find us on YouTube, uh, on Twitter and Spotify, all of those at Debbie Radio, as well as on our website, DebbieRadio.com. And for all of those, it's D-E-B-I Radio. Sure was clear that all of this was new. Concentrating hard like a little girl. Smoking for the first time.